0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We expect in our second segment today to talk, as advertised on last week's program, with investigative journalist Joe Rubin. Joe's done some pretty darn good work in the past, and we expect some good things to come out of him in the future, and for the present, well, he'll be chatting with us. Stay tuned for that. Let's begin our program today as we like to do with On This Date in History, and it is especially curious day in history today, for this April 9th marks the 150th anniversary of the end of the United States Civil War. Yes, exactly a century and a half ago Confederate General Robert E Lee surrendered his army to Union General Ulysses S Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. Although there were still Confederate armies in the field, the war was officially over. For the previous week, Grant had been trying to outrun. For the previous week, Lee had been trying to outrun Grant. After a 10-month siege, Union forces had broken through Confederate defenses and forced Lee into retreat. When he arrived at Appomattox, he found that his path was blocked. He then had no choice but to request a meeting with Grant. So it was that the four-year war with its 500,000 lives lost finally, mercifully, came to an end. Although looking at the electoral map of the United States and seeing who gets elected and where, you'd have to think that uh, the Civil War, in a way, is still with us. There has been a bit of a flip. The Civil War took place because a Republican in 1860... Abraham Lincoln got elected over a trio of Democrats, which split the vote. For several decades before, and for almost 100 years afterwards, the South voted solidly Democratic. That has all changed now. The South votes solidly Republican. And in other events taking place on April 9th, it was on April 9th in the year 243, that Mani, an Iranian religious figure who attempted to fuse the teachings of Jesus with Zoroaster, made his first appearance as a preacher, according to tradition. On April 9th in the year 837, Halley's Comet made its closest known passage to Earth. How close, you ask? Well, I took the time to look this one up, because arguably the great astronomical disappointment of my lifetime was Halley's Comet's 1986 appearance. It was, by all accounts, the worst appearance of Halley's Comet in 2,000 years. The comet never got closer than 40 million miles to Earth, which rendered it a half a Q-tip at arm's length. And frankly, to see it that well, you had to do like I did and go to the Southern Hemisphere. Whereas lucky observers in the year 837 saw Halley's Comet splayed across two-thirds of the night sky. It passed a mere three million miles away that time. Although it's worth noting that back in 1910, the comet passed between the Earth and the sun, and our planet actually passed through the comet's tail. We also note that it was on April 9th in 1872 that Samuel R. Percy patented powdered milk. And 90 years later, on April 9th in 1962, the Hollywood musical version of West Side Story... An updated Romeo and Juliet tale set in gang-ridden New York City won 10 Academy Awards. It's tremendous music, but I have to admit, after seeing a wonderful stage production at the Golden Gate Theater, I gave away my copy of the movie. Still, great music. Nobody can take that away from it. Our quote of the day comes from California's Jerry Brown, who said on ABC's This Week on Sunday, some people have a right to more water than others. Which prompts us to make our quip of the day the quote from George Orwell's Animal Farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And If you think about it, that's pretty appropriate, because when it comes to creating water hogs here in California... You have to look at Edmund G. Brown Jr. and his old man, Edmund G. Brown Sr., for what they've done to create our incredibly wasteful, insane system of distributing water, at least by the state of California. We'll have more to say about that. In fact, starting immediately by quoting from Willie Brown's column from the San Francisco Chronicle, no relation, said the former Speaker of the Assembly and San Francisco Mayor and Radio Parallax guest, California doesn't just have a water shortage. It has a shortage of politicians willing to do anything substantive about it. The reason is simple. Politicians are in the business of giving things to the public, not taking them away. The only politician talking about water cuts is the guy who doesn't have to run for re-election, Jerry Brown. But even his call to, quote, conserve, unquote, isn't exactly draconian. He's ordering a 25% cutback, But from the elevated levels of two years ago, not from last year when folks were already starting to be frugal. Added Willie, Brown got a lot of attention with his visit to the non-existent snowpack in the Sierra, but if he'd been serious, he would have been down in Palm Springs calling for them to turn off the water on the golf courses. As I say, we'll have more to say about that before the hour's up. Our joke of the day, which is appropriate, I think, for tax time, is as follows where, down at the local St. Mary's Church, Father O'Malley answers the phone. Hello, is this Father O'Malley? It is. This is the IRS. Can you help us? Well, I think I can. Do you know a Ted Houlihan? Well, in fact, I do. Is he a member of your congregation? Well, he is, yes. Can you verify, Father, that he donated $10,000 to your church? Well, sir, I can verify that he will. Our good news item for the week is as follows. This comes from the health and science section of the week. Scientists have long known that opossums are largely immune to snake bite. And now they know why. It turns out that the only marsupial in the Americas contains in its blood a peptide that scientists are calling lethal toxin neutralizing factor, L-T-N-F. Scientists have now isolated this peptide and injected it into mice exposed to several venomous snake bites. In all cases, the treatment protected the mice from the venom. Thus, it seems that opossum anti-venom, which could be produced at low cost and in large quantities, may also protect people against venomous scorpions and some toxic plants without negative side effects. Researcher Claire Combes told NationalGeographic.com that the peptide works so well against all natural poisons that it's like a miracle. Our stat of the day comes from the Harper's Index, January edition. Item number one, percentage of Benjamin Netanyahu's 2014 primary campaign contributions that came from the United States. 90%. Percentage that came from just three U.S. families, 30%. Here's one we like. Number of U.S. congressional districts in which trade with China has produced more jobs than it has cost. The answer is one. Keep in mind that in the United States, there are 435 congressional districts. And our bonus stat of the week comes from Bloomberg.com. It notes that at least 80 of the U.S.'s 100 largest law firms have experienced some kind of cybersecurity breach. Experts say most of the cyber attacks can be traced back to Chinese hackers, especially when the affected firms work on government contracts or mergers and acquisitions. And our anecdote for today's show is that... Britney Spears, who made $50 million last year from her recordings and live Las Vegas performances, has gone back to school, according to People magazine. The singer is taking math classes so she can help her sons, Sean 9 and Jaden 8, with their homework. Spears dropped out of high school in the ninth grade to focus on her pop career, noting that some of this math is hard for me. Next year, when Sean's in fifth grade, he's going to be doing pre-algebra, and I'm taking classes so I know how to do it. Well, having seen what's being taught these days as pre-algebra, I can, I think, reassure Britney Spears and the rest of you that you really don't need to know how to do it any more than working out jumble the word puzzle is something you need to do. And Mr. Millen opines that at least jumble is fun. Speak for yourself, sir. You'd rather do pre-algebra? Well, no, but that's Hobson's choice. And do we have to explain that to our audience, being a University of California-type audience? You probably better. Well, as I understand the story, a man named Hobson had a stable of particularly lame horses, and when you went to rent one from Hobson, no matter which one he gave you, it was sure to be a broken-down nag. So while you had a choice, in a manner of speaking, it was Hobson's choice. Now that I think about it, maybe we shouldn't be explaining these things. In fact, let's jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for exculpatory evidence after a UCLA researcher found that despite persistent beliefs to the contrary, the phases of the moon have no discernible effect on hospital admissions, births, or criminal activity. Said the researcher, the moon is innocent. This, of course, backs up research done by the host of this program while attending medical school and residency. I actually charted the phases of the moon, at least when it was a full moon, to note that there is, indeed, no correlation. Thank you, UCLA, for backing me up. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for Riding Shotgun. After a Washington State motorist was busted in the carpool lane when he had alongside him a cardboard cutout of Dos Equis Beer's Most Interesting Man in the World. After issuing the citation, the state trooper tweeted, I don't always violate the carpool lane law, but when I do, I get a $124 ticket. And Radio Parallax is proud to report that as we record this show, In the Room with us is, in fact, a cardboard cutout of Dos Equis's most interesting man in the world. And yes, rumor has it that while he doesn't always listen to the radio, when he does, he prefers KDVS. And it was an ugly week last week for mother-in-law jokes with the news that a Russian businesswoman has been jailed after she tried to organize a hit on her son's wife who had irritated her by making non-stop mother-in-law jokes. Evidently, Taksiana Kudivina, age 50, began feuding with her daughter-in-law, Roxanne, over who should pick up the tab for a family party. After the argument, Roxanne kept on joking about her skin-flint mother-in-law. And, as a consequence, Kudinova hired a hitman to kill her. Luckily for the daughter-in-law, the hitman turned out to be an undercover policeman, and she was sentenced to nine years in prison. And depending on how you look at it, it was either a bad or an ugly week last week for America's terrorist detection system, with the news that newly disclosed documents reveals that the TSA's checklist for identifying potential terrorists include warning signs such as excessive blinking and yawning, pale cheeks because of a recently shaved beard, and arriving late for a flight. And finally, depending on how you look at it, it was either a good, a bad, or an ugly week for speaking truth to power, or at least speaking truth to Saudi Arabia, with the news that Sweden's leftist foreign minister, Margot Wallstrom, denounced the Saudis' repression of women a few weeks ago. As you may know, they are banned from driving in the kingdom and can't leave home without a male guardian. Even worse from the military industry's perspective was the fact that she said it was unethical for Sweden, the world's 12th largest arms exporter, to keep selling weapons to the kingdom. Riyadh promptly recalled its ambassador and quit issuing visas to Swedish businessmen and called on its Gulf allies to do the same. Here's the part I like. Alarmed Swedish business leaders then protested Wallstrom's stance with executives from H&M, Volvo, Ericsson, and other firms signing an open letter that said Saudi Arabia was Sweden's most important trade partner in the Middle East. Of course, the worst thing about this story is that Wallstrom's European colleagues have remained silent. That's at least as reported by Nick Cohen in The Spectator of the UK, who said that Sweden is facing sanctions, accusations of Islamophobia, and maybe worse to come for the simple crime of telling the truth. And its neighbors have nothing to say? Why so craven? Well, it's basic economics. All right, and in news from our criminal justice system, we have the fact that finally, on his 20th try, James Schoenfeld, one of the three men who kidnapped a busload of Chowchilla school and their bus driver almost 40 years ago, was finally granted parole last Wednesday. It's a very strange story we've talked about in this program before. But I do think it's safe to say that four decades later, there's little chance that Mr. Schoenfeld or his other Confederates are likely to try and kidnap a school bus again anytime soon. They kind of made a hash of it the first time in their efforts to be criminals. Madera County District Attorney David Lynn was quoted as saying, a statewide movement toward reducing prison overcrowding apparently made Schoenfeld's parole more likely than in previous years. And last week, a federal judge ordered California's Corrections Department to provide a transgender inmate with sex change surgery. This is the first time such an operation has been ordered in California. U.S. District Court Judge John Tiger in San Francisco ruled that denying sex reassignment surgery to 51-year-old Michelle Lyell Nosworthy violates her constitutional rights. Her birth name is Jeffrey Bryan Norsworthy. Now, we have to admit, we don't understand this. If you're a private citizen lacking the $100,000 to obtain this procedure, well, that's all good and well. But if you're a murderer and you wind up in state prison, then we, the taxpayers, are obliged to provide this service? And no, we don't know if they do perform this surgery whether Michelle Lyle Knowsworthy then gets transferred to the Chowchilla Women's Prison. We, we just don't know. But we do take the position here in Radio Parallax that this is an example of why we need to look very carefully at the connection between psychiatry and our criminal justice system. And it might be a good time to add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But this does remind me, Mr. Millen, I should probably tell more tales about my experiences working in the women's prison down in Chowchilla. You should. But not today. And let's take a moment to cite a couple of book reviews about the new work Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry by Jeffrey A. Lieberman. Lieberman is the former president of the American Psychiatric Association. And according to Gary Greenberg, writing in bookforum.com, is attempting to repair the reputation of his profession by apologizing for its appalling past mistakes while celebrating the successes it has achieved since drugs that effectively control certain psychiatric symptoms began emerging in the 1950s. Notes Greenberg, to make his case, Lieberman has to ignore mountains of evidence that psychiatrists provide ever-shifting definitions of mental illness, turn normal human suffering into pathology, and promiscuously prescribe handfuls of powerful pills whose effects they can't predict and don't really understand notes Greenberg in his view psychiatry isn't in need of rethinking what it needs is better public relations Greenberg calls it a reassuring view that's in conflict with reality In writing in the Wall Street Journal Carol Tavris said there's nothing untold in this untold story of psychiatry other authors before Lieberman have detailed the misguided and sometimes cruel therapies that were inflicted on psychiatric patients well into the 20th century And he's not the first to explain how Sigmund Freud's ideas and methods led the profession astray for a good half century. But she notes, unfortunately, it's always easier to see the follies of the past than our own. When Lieberman arrives at psychiatry's post-Freudian era, he loses his critical perspective. Shrinks never tackles the profession's cozy ties with big pharma or the doubts other medical professionals have raised about psychiatry's diagnostic criteria. The book also doesn't mention that the field has yet to identify even one reliable biological marker of mental illness, to which I say, amen. And I must say, as one who deals with erectile dysfunction, which I do professionally most days of the week, I want to note that it disturbs me to see patient after patient come to me who is on a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor like Effexor and Prozac Which I'm pretty sure their psychiatrist and primary care physician is unaware, have sexual dysfunction rates running about 80%. And I guess it's my responsibility as a professional to let people know that such is the case. Not saying such drugs don't have their uh, role, they do. But if you've been on them a while and you're feeling better, start asking your psychiatrist and family physician whether you should consider coming off of them. Although I do note with fear and sadness that. As far as we know, some of these sexual effects may be permanent. And to which I would add, thank God, the treatments for sexual dysfunction these days tend to be pretty darn effective. But please, if you're considering going on some of these medications, have a good long conversation with your doctor about them. And if he or she downplays the sexual dysfunction aspect about this, well, I would keep asking some pointed questions. And you know, speaking about what a bunch of jerks the Saudis are, which uh, we were a minute ago. Let's back into this story. Writing in Pakistan's version of The Nation magazine, a man named Gul Bukhari noted last February that Pakistan's government is letting the Saudi royals have their way with this country. Bukhari noted that we thought things might change after the outcry last year when it was revealed that Saudi Prince Fahd bin Sultan bin Abdul Aziz had completely ignored the limitations on the license he was given to hunt endangered Hobara bustards. He was allowed to kill 100 of the rare birds, but slaughtered 2,100, which Bukhari described as a jaw-dropping violation that looks kind of like an open insult to the country. So how did the Pakistani government react? Well, to avoid embarrassment of catching princes flouting the law, it gave the Saudi royals blank licenses such as they might plunder to their desires. He added, the Pakistani elite is happy to let the Saudi sheikhs do whatever they want, including destroying our environment and poisoning our youth's mind with their petrol dollar funded madrasas, so long as the Saudis keep funneling cash their way. All right, we need a break, but I can't end on that. All right, how about this one? I went down to the Bay Area on Saturday and called a friend of mine, and asked him what he was doing that night, and he said, I'm going to Berkeley to see a play by Moliere. Now, I would note that I've heard of what a great playwright and comedian Moliere was, but I'd never seen any of his work. So I called the Berkeley Repertory Theater and asked if they had any tickets that night left for their play by Moliere, and they said they did. So I bought one. Had to ask myself after I bought it, what was the name of that play again? And it turned out it was Tartuffe. And boy, am I glad I did. And I would add that I believe it ends uh, this coming Sunday down in Berkeley. And, dear listener, you could do worse than to attend uh, this play. The little man in the Chronicle was up on his seat, hands clapping. And its brief review was... Farce bears its fangs in director Dominique Saran's bracingly funny, provocatively transgressive, and darkly revelatory version of Moliere's classic satire on predatory religious hypocrisy, with stunning design elements and a terrific cast which is a pretty darn good summary. The play's program had a wonderful piece by Julie McCormick about uh, Tartuffe and a select history of Western theatrical censorship, which I'd love to go into, but we're running short on time today, so I'll have to defer that to next week's program. Censorship, of course, is a big topic with us here at Radio Parallax, which is why after the break we're going to talk with an investigative journalist, in this case, Joe Rubin. We think these guys are heroes. So chat with one, we shall. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. By all means, don't go away.